we are in our series called His Story. And in, in the series today, we're coming to uh, a, a part of the story that I suspect if we went around the uh, auditorium this morning and asked you to reflect on this before the lesson, you would think, hmm, I don't know, I've never really thought that much about it. Well, I want to introduce something today that I hope will make you appreciate Jesus all the more as we're framing his story this year. Now, the text for our reflection this week, our memory work, whatever you're doing with this text, praying through it, uh, is not this text. This introduces the text. So let me start off with this. This is Acts chapter 1. And it gives us an important detail into the life of Jesus. After the resurrection, Jesus remained on the earth for 40 days, making appearances, giving proof that he had indeed been raised from the dead. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs, Luke writes, that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? What is it going to be like? Because the apostles are still struggling as far as their concept of what Jesus came and what he did at the cross and what he would do after the cross. I want you to notice the text. This begins in verse 9 of Acts chapter 1. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, they are on the Mount of Olives. They're uh, just on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives toward the little village of Bethany where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And there Jesus ascends. He's just lifted up. And notice the text here. He literally is lifted up in front of their eyes until he goes up into the clouds. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Now, here's the point I want to make. If we're not careful, we see Jesus' ascension as the end of his ministry and work. In other words, he goes back to heaven, job accomplished, his work is finished. You know, as he said on the cross, it is finished, it's over. And if we think that, we are badly mistaken. It's not the end of his work, it is actually the beginning of his work. We sing a song sometime called, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High, by an author uh, by the name of Rick Fowns. He wrote this song, and he wrote it based on this text here in Acts chapter 1. And, and so, notice the words to the song. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross. My debt to pay from the cross to the grave and then from the grave to the sky. And so, Lord, I lift your name on high. As if that's the whole story of Jesus. But it's not the whole story of Jesus. Now, I love this song. Don't get me wrong. Beautiful song. And we've got a lot of songs that express that same, you know, uh, idea of what Jesus did while upon the earth. But we need to go back and reflect again on what the angels told Jesus, uh, excuse me, told the disciples as they're standing there just kind of dumbfounded, having watched Jesus be lifted back up into heaven, into the clouds. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? 
And then notice, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him going to heaven. In other words, he's going to return in the clouds someday. And here we are almost 2,000 years later, and he's not returned yet. I mean, he left, and he's coming back, but now 2,000 years later, he's not returned yet. And you have to ask yourself a very simple question. So what is Jesus doing? What's going on? I mean, he came, he died, he was raised again. I mean, isn't it, Lord, time for you to, you know, set up this final new creation that you promised? What are you waiting for? And it's the answer to that question that I want us to ponder this morning. Because I don't think sometimes we as Christians think about what is Jesus doing now? Now, the answer to the question, we have to go back in time. We have to go back to Daniel chapter 7. I don't know if you're joining us on Sunday night, excuse me, on Wednesday nights. But on Wednesday nights, we're looking at the book of Daniel. It's a series that's online. Go to hendersonville.org, front page, scroll down, and you can tune in each week. All the past lessons are there. But, but the book of Daniel, written, uh, we don't know exactly when it was written, but it was written about a man who lived some 2,600 years ago. And, and Daniel was a man who uh, had been carried off into captivity, and he's trying to figure out how to live for God in a pagan land. And, and in this book, you, you have 12 chapters divided up in six chapters of stories about Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, stories like that. And then you have six chapters, the last six, that are about visions that Daniel had about the coming kingdom of God. And chapter 7 is the first of those visions. And I want you to notice this vision, what Daniel sees. He says, and I looked, or as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. In other words, he has a vision of, of heaven itself, of God sitting on his throne. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair, uh, the hair of his head was white like wool. Blake, I'm, I'm hopefully, in at least that sense, becoming more like God every day. Some other sense, maybe not, but maybe on that one. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. One of the things that's fascinating, and I've got Ezekiel here because Ezekiel says the same thing, describes God's throne not like a chair that we oftentimes envision, but literally almost like a chariot. And, and it has wheels, and these wheels are aflame. And, of course, the image is, is that it's a throne that can move. It's not stationary in, in where it's located. Now, there's a couple of things in this text that I want to draw your attention to. Notice the very first line there. As I looked, thrones were set in place. Why thrones? I mean, I thought God was the one and only God. And so God's throne should be there. Why are there a multitude of thrones? And if you'd lived in Daniel's day, you would have known immediately what was meant by that. We don't have that concept in America today, right? We, we don't have a royal family. We don't have a king or a queen. And, you know, we don't look forward to who's going to be the next king. You know, we, we have presidents, of course, but they come every four years. And then, you know, they might repeat for four more, and then you get the next one and the next one. 
But in the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon at all for a king at some point, especially as he got older, to bring in another throne. And he would bring that throne in and set it beside his throne, and then he would appoint the next king who would replace him, oftentimes his firstborn son. Not always, but oftentimes. And they would reign together as co-regents. And in many ways, that's what the people who first saw this is thinking in their minds. Okay, God is, he's allowing someone to reign with him? You go down to verse 13 of the same chapter. One of the most important passages in all the Old Testament. We looked at it actually several weeks ago. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man. I hope that phrase Son of Man brings some thoughts to your mind. It was Jesus' favorite description of himself. He was the Son of Man. Where did he get that from? Got it from the book of Daniel. He said, Daniel does, I saw one who was like the Son of Man, and he was coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, here's the thing you've got to realize. He's coming with the clouds of heaven, but he's not coming this direction. He's going that direction. He's approaching God. He's not coming from heaven to earth. He's coming from earth to heaven. Because notice, he approached the ancients of days and was led into his presence. Now, once again, that, that is something that we read and we just kind of fly over it. Don't fly over it. Don't just read it and go on. Who led him into the presence of God? Who did that? And why did they do that? You see, the language here is, is very much a language that the ancient world would have understood. You know, oftentimes, whether it was Babylon or Assyria or later Greece and Rome, you would have these victorious generals who would go out and they would fight the enemies of their particular nation and they would defeat them, and then they would ride back into the capital city. And, and you would have the soldiers with them and you would have all the slaves that they had taken and there would be this long procession as this Roman or, or Greek or even Babylonian general would come back to be, you know, treated like royalty. And that's the image here. One like the Son of Man, who is approaching the Ancient of Days as if he had been out to battle and had come home victorious. And then you go on in the text and it says, and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and people of every language worshipped him. Now this was language that is coming right on the heels of Nebuchadnezzar having been the one to set up a giant image and calling upon all the people of all the world, every nation, to worship it. And here's Daniel saying, no, no, it's not the image of Nebuchadnezzar. It's the son of man who God had sent and is now returning home victorious. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, if you look at these words in this text, you can't help but be drawn to another book at the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Because it's the same type of language. Look at this. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive, notice, power, wealth, Wisdom, strength, honor, glory, praise. And this time, it's not just to all the nations of the earth, but notice, then I heard every creature in heaven, 
on the earth, under the earth, on the sea, all of them saying to him who sits on the throne, the Ancient of Days, and to the Lamb. Now, of course, if you know anything about the New Testament, that Lamb is the same one who is called Son of Man. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Why? Because on his robe, that is the robe of this lamb. I mean, you know, the Son of Man appears in so many different images in the text. I mean, in Revelation, John says, Come and I'll show you the lion of the tribe of Judah. And of course, John looks up expecting to see this lion, but instead he sees a lamb. And that's the lamb that is pictured here who has on his robe, on his thigh, written the words, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, once again, we go back. Why is the word thrones, plural, here in this text in Daniel? And why do you have all of these words of authority and sovereign prior and dominion and kingdom? And the answer is that what you have going on is this incredible scene of Jesus returning from having defeated death itself, the great enemy of all of mankind. And Daniel said he's led into God's presence. Led by whom? Led by angels. I can't imagine what it was like. I mean, here on earth you've got these 11 men staring up to the sky with two angels saying, what are you looking at? And boy, if they could have just seen what they were looking at if they could have been allowed to get on the other side of the clouds and to see Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven, being led into the presence of God. You know, when Jesus was born, the angels for the first time, they were missing that, that one element that had been a part of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and ever. And all at once, that one element is missing. He's no longer in the presence of God. He's a baby in a manger of all places. And what do the angels do? They go out to the shepherds in the field and they begin to sing and praise God because of what he had done. And I can't help but think if they, you had angels praising God when Jesus came into the world, what was it like when he was led back into the Father's presence? Can you imagine the scene of Jesus returning victorious? And being led and given a throne at the right hand of God. You see, it's that right hand of God that Jesus knew was coming. You see, you turn over to the Gospels and Jesus takes Daniel chapter 7 and and Psalm chapter 110. And he merges those together. He says, you see, the Son of Man is going to ascend into the clouds and he's going to come into the presence of the Father. And there he's going to be given all dominion and authority and he's going to take his place at the right hand of God Almighty as God defeats his enemies. You see, it's that part of what happened at the ascension that I think we miss. You know, we read it. Okay, and we move on. But we need to pause for a while and ask a very simple question. So what is he doing now? I love the way the Passion translates this text out of Psalm 110. Yahweh, the name of God himself. Yahweh said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit with me. Sit with me as enthroned ruler while I uh, uh, subdue your enemy. 
They will bow low before you as I make them a footstool for your feet. And that's exactly what Jesus is now doing. And so you may say, okay, but what is he doing? And that's where it gets fascinating. Number one, he's defeating his enemies. He's defeating our enemies. Now, you you may think, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Well, you go back to the text there. Here's Paul's rendering of Psalm 110. Christ must rule until God has put every enemy under his control. And the last enemy he'll destroy is death. You see, right now, Jesus is subduing the evil forces that control this world. And I know you're probably thinking, boy, if he's doing it, he's not doing a very good job. Be careful of what you see as opposed to what's really going on. How many of you remember 1989? I know some of you don't, but some of you do. Do you remember 1989? 1989 was an interesting year. It began as 1988 or 87, 86 had. I mean, you had two world powers. You had the Soviet Union, you had the United States of America. And they had been Cold War enemies now for, you know, three decades. Ever since World War II ended. And then all at once in 1989, something weird began to happen. I mean, it began in all places, Berlin, Germany. When all at once, people began to go up to the wall that separated East and West Germany and they began to hammer on it. And in the past, East Germany soldiers would have shot them and killed them instantly. But all at once, they were joining in. And the next thing we know, they had literally beaten a hole through that wall and people from East Germany began to stream into the West. And East Germany fell. And then Poland fell. And then Romania fell. And one by one, all of these countries that had been known as the Iron Curtain began to crumble. And even the Soviet Union fell. No longer the Soviet Union, but different countries that had once made it up. What happened? What happened is is that even though here in the West we're looking and going, man, it's an iron wall, an iron curtain, God was saying, watch what happens when I touch it. Let me just tell you that if you think Satan is winning, you need to think again. His world is crumbling. Number two, what is Jesus doing? He's interceding for you and me. He's serving as our high priest. John would say, my dear children, I write this to you so that you do not sin or you will not sin. Boy, every time I read that when I think, boy, you'd be disappointed in me, John. Now, you have to understand what John had just written in chapter 1. John had just written, by the way, if anyone claims that they don't sin, they're a liar and God's not with them. You see, it's not possible to live this life without sin. But he says, you know what? God is trying to move you closer and closer to Him and further and further away from sin. And here's the key to it all. Notice the next part of the verse. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate. That word there is the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit. We have one who comes alongside us, who stands with us and says, I understand what he or she is going through, Father. That's why I died on the cross for their sins. You see, we don't have this all-seeing eye watching you that we used to sing. That song maybe has an appropriateness to it. But boy, as a kid, it scared me to death. As if God was this judge just waiting for us to mess up. And here's John saying, that's not who he is at all. He's a God who allows his own son to stand at our side. When we are caught in sin, why? 
to let us know we're going to be okay as long as we stand with Him. Number three, He's deeply concerned with what we're going through. He not only intercedes for us, but He knows what's going on in our individual lives. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is when Stephen is about to be stoned in the book of Acts. He's preached to the Sanhedrin. They're so angry now, they're fixing to kill him. But I want you to notice what the text says. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, just like these apostles did, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open. Look at the phrase there. And the Son of Man. Same phrase that had been used over in Daniel chapter 7. Standing at the right hand of God. And I want you to look specifically at that phrase there, standing. You, you, you go, wait, wait a minute, I thought Jesus sat. He did. He sat at the right hand of God. But there are occasions when his children are going through suffering when Jesus stands up. You ever been in a room when, when you thought, uh-oh, we're in trouble, and then someone stands up and everybody just sits back down? You know, kind of like old John Wayne used to in those westerns. You know, you let John Wayne walk into the scene, you know everything's going to be all right. Well, that's the way it is here with Jesus. I wonder how many times in your life Jesus has stood up and the Father said, what are you doing? And he says, one of my, one of my brothers and sisters is going through something difficult and I need, to, I need to stand with them. He cares about us. He's preparing a place for us. We all know the text from John 14, how that he goes to prepare a place for us. And if he goes to prepare a place for us, he says, I will come back that where I am there you may be also. You know, I, I hear people sometimes say, you know, all I want in heaven is a cabin over in the corner of Glory Land. It's actually a country song that says that. And I like to remind people that royalty doesn't live in cabins. I've heard people say, if God will just give me a closet... God's children don't sleep in closets, folks. God's children live in mansions. And boy, when we think of mansions, we don't even have an idea of what Jesus has prepared for us. He's going to prepare a place for us. Revelation describes it as a city, the new Jerusalem. And, and it's beautiful, like a bride who's dressed for her husband. I mean, can you imagine... Can you go back to when, if, if you're one of the men here and you've been married, can you go back to that night or maybe that day when your wife and the doors opened up and she walked through those doors in that beautiful bridal gown? What it was like? That's the image of the place Jesus has prepared for us. Number five, and he's preparing to welcome us into his presence. If he delays his coming, then all of us will eventually have that time when we pass from this life. But the thing that gives me the greatest hope are words from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.23. I've torn between the two, Paul said. I desire to depart and to be with Christ. Paul had seen an image of what heaven was like. He had been allowed a vision of that. And as Paul was faced with trials in his life, he says, you know what? If I die, guess what? It's actually far better. I don't know how many times I've met with loved ones and I've said, listen, I know it's hard to understand. On this side, we're grieving. On that side, our loved one is saying, listen, I miss you, but not that bad. You know, I'm on this side. And it's so much better. And Jesus is prepared to await us 
to, to welcome us into his presence. And that leads us to the last one. And that is he's preparing to return with us as well. You see, that's one of the things that I love about the text. When we die, what happens to us? We go to be with Jesus. Our spirits do. And we're in the presence of God. And we're in a place like paradise itself. And yet we're waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting for the resurrection. Waiting for the coming age of the Messiah when we'll reign with him forever and ever. And it was Paul who would say, uh, or excuse me, it was the angel who would say in Acts 1.11, that same Jesus you saw go, he's going to come. And so Paul in 1 Thessalonians, it says, when he comes, look at the last line here, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Keith Parker and I have a, kind of a running debate. We've talked about this. Keith hopes he's alive when Jesus returns. I hope I die before Jesus returns. And you go, why? Because if Keith is still alive, I get to come back with Jesus. I get to see Jesus before Keith does. I keep reminding him of that. I keep asking him, why in the world would you want to be here and allow me to get a head start on you? Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me incredible comfort to know that the day is coming that even if I leave this world, I go to a better place and I stay with Jesus until it's time for Him to come back and I get to come back with Him. Jesus' work over? Oh no, it's just begun. And He's there serving each of us right now. I don't know where you are in your life, but Jesus wants you to know, and I've just thrown uh, my channel changer down the stairs here, uh, but, but I want you to know that Jesus is interceding for us right now. Now, if you're not a child of God, he, He's already interceded for you at the cross. And, and He would love to meet you there, to, to be buried with Him in baptism. That opportunity is always available. I'll be down front after services. Come see me. Otherwise, He's there interceding for us in our behalf. Boy, let's celebrate that reality. Let's everyone please stand as we go to God in prayer and we'll have one song Father thank you thank you that not only was Jesus born not only did he live and die not only was he raised to the third day but Father he sits right now at your right hand working harder than ever before on our behalf for that we say thank you thank you thank you in his name Amen